Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight, we pray that your spirit would help us to see your glory and that we might reflect the glory of Jesus in our lives today. Amen. Well, I do invite you to keep that uh, passage open because I will be referring to it in quite a lot of detail in a little while. But as uh, Margaret's already said to us, we are in the Advent season. In fact, the first Sunday of Advent was last Sunday when we had that glorious jazz carols here. Um, But it begs the question, of course, what do we understand by the word Advent? What does it mean? Well, the word Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming. And it's it's a translation of the Greek word parousia. I think that's how you pronounce it. It means coming. And uh, we'll see something about that in a minute. But uh, it's often concerned with looking forward, but also looking back. So looking back at the birth of Christ, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. It focuses on expectations. Now this uh, season of Advent was seen differently by Christians through uh, the period of 2,000 years. For instance, in the 5th century, uh, they used the time to think about the first baptisms. By the time we get to the 6th century, the Roman Christians had, in fact, uh, tied in Advent to the coming of Christ. But this coming they had in mind was not the coming at Bethlehem, not the first birth of Jesus. No, it was the coming of Christ and the second coming as the judge of the world. And it wasn't until the Middle Ages that Advent season was actually linked in to Jesus' first coming as well as his second coming. So today, the church uses Advent to look back to, to the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem and at the same time looking forward in eager anticipation to Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people and to judge the living and the dead. So my main question for us this evening is what are we looking forward to? What are we looking forward to? What are our hopes for the future? Well, of course, we can have short-term hopes and we have long-term hopes. We might have the hope that we will have a nice car. Okay, that might be one of our hopes. We might have the hope that uh, it's Christmas time and we're going to have some really nice food. Well, perhaps we'd all say they are fairly short-term hopes. Perhaps we've got a longer-term hope of a a lovely relationship that's going to end up in marriage and family. Might be short-term hope if it's going to happen on Thursday. Perhaps we're all hoping we're going to finally get rid of this thing called the election. And some of us may be hoping that that will end up with the separation of Europe from Britain or whatever. What's our hope? for the future. And what is this hope based upon? 
Is it based upon politicians? Is it based upon education, wealth, family, friends, economic growth? Well, some of these things, of course, are good. But will they bring light to the world, which is the topic of our Advent series? And so it raises the question, doesn't it? What hope does the passage we have in front of us tonight in 2 Corinthians bring to us? And so, what we're looking at here is this second letter written by the Apostle Paul to this young church in the city of Corinth. So why was he writing this letter? Well, he was writing it to encourage, to challenge and to help those young Christians to understand the hope that they had as a result of the gospel of Christ, as taught by Paul. Now, it seems, uh, according to the authorities, uh, that uh, the Corinthian church had been infiltrated by false teachers and preachers. And these false teachers and preachers had opposed Paul's teaching and the word of God. And there's some evidence that some of these false teachers had come from a Jewish background. And uh, the ones that come from the Jewish background emphasized the need for Jesus' followers to keep the law as given to Moses by God, what we call the Ten Commandments. And so, in his defense, Paul compares the old covenant given by God to Moses and the people of Israel to the new covenant provided by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So then, what is the hope that Paul speaks of here? Well, the context of this seems to suggest that it's the hope of glory as given in Paul's writing to Colossians 1, verse 27. And you'll see up there on the screen. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He speaks of this also in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 to 11, where he's been speaking of the passing glory of the ministry of Moses and the much greater glory of the ministry of the Spirit. We read of this also in Hebrews, where in Hebrews the writer says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now if we're going to understand this passage that we've got in front of us from verse 12, we need to understand something about the background that led up to it, because in verse 12 it's therefore... And if we do understand the therefore, we need to know what came before. So in verses 7 to 12, Paul compares the relationship of the Jewish people with that of the new covenant. And he says that they were unable to keep the old covenant, which led to death. And so he compares this old one to the new one provided by the Spirit in verse 8 and the death of Jesus on the cross. Now this old one, this old covenant, was based upon what we find written in Exodus chapter 24 
and 34. We haven't got time tonight to read those two chapters, so I'm going to give you a brief outline of what's going on here. We see in these chapters that Moses is called by God. He's called by God to go up a mountain, Mount Sinai, where God gives him the Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone. Now we read there that Moses spends 40 days and nights with God. He spoke with God. He spends time with God. He does what God says. And then he comes down from Mount Sinai and reports to the people what God has commanded them to do in their lives. Now, as a result of this time spending with God, God who is perfect and holy and without any sin, Moses' face shines. His face shines. And it shines from the reflective glory that comes from him being in the presence of the holy God. Now, this theme of God's glory is a theme that's found in many places in the Bible, but not just in the Old Testament. And so we read in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3, that Jesus also went up on a mountain, but he was accompanied by three disciples, And there he was changed. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And all this was witnessed by Peter, James, and John. Jesus displays the glory of God. And we read of God's glory also in the prophecy in Revelation chapter 1. But what was the effect of this shining face of Moses. Well, we read that it terrified the people, and so he puts on a veil to stop the people from being frightened. Now, the Apostle Paul goes some way to explaining the significance of this veil over Moses' face. It was to prevent the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside verse 13 in 2 Corinthians 3. And it was because of the, uh, the blindness of their eyes and their hearts that they couldn't see Christ, verse 14 and 15. But Moses also puts on the veil because this will prevent the people from witnessing the fact that the glory will gradually fade because it comes from a reflection and not from the inner being of Moses. Later, we read in Exodus that again Moses goes into the presence of God in the tent. He speaks with him on behalf of the people. And again, he puts on the veil because his face reflects the glory of God. And so, what do we see about this old covenant? Well, this old covenant was based upon the people keeping the written law, the Ten Commandments. It was a kingdom of light, but it fades with time as people fail to keep the law and disobey God. So then what about the new covenant? What do we see in this passage about the new covenant in contrast to the old one? Well, we see that Paul is a minister of this new covenant, not because of his ability or his keeping the law, but because of the work of God's Spirit. Look at verses 3 
to 6 in chapter 3. The Corinthian Christians are evidence of Paul's work is not the result of the law, but of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And Paul is confident, not in the old law, but in the new law, which is the work of the Spirit. He goes on to expand upon this in verses 7 to 11. The old covenant reflects the glory of God, but the results of this fade, whilst the new covenant brought by the work of the Spirit leads to glory, which lasts because it's the result of righteousness, which is the life of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives. Therefore, we come now to verse 12. As a result of this, therefore, in other words, as a result of Paul being part of this new covenant based upon the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he has what? He has hope for the future. And this leads him to be very confident in the message that he is preaching, in the life that he is living, because it's based upon Jesus and his paying the price for Paul's sins. Therefore, he can be bold in what he does and what he says. And he gives reasons for this boldness and this hope. He is not like Moses, whose reflective holiness fades away, such as he has to put on the veil. And Paul continues using this image of a veil to show that the people's understanding is hardened and hindered by their pride, their hardness of heart, and their refusal to repent. So the veil hinders them from understanding references to Jesus in their scriptures. It's hidden from them, who by? By Satan, we read, the God of this age. We read this in chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, which says this, If the new good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So there we have it. We have a passage which is quite complicated, but quite deep as well. But it brings us, as followers of Jesus... Uh, in this Advent season, both challenges and encouragements. And this is what we're going to move on to now. The challenges that it brings us if we are followers of Jesus. The challenges are this. Do we have the same hope that Paul has, that Jesus will return a second time? Do we have the same boldness based upon the work of the Spirit in our lives and faith in Jesus? Do we believe that what Paul writes in verse 14, their minds made dull, in chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers? 
that those friends, family members, are blinded, who don't see and understand the gift of Jesus that we're going to celebrate this Christmas. Those that don't believe in Advent, which remembers the birth of Jesus, God's Son, and the promise of his return a second time. So it's a challenge to us, isn't it? And another challenge is, do we believe what Paul writes, that the reason why people don't believe and follow Jesus is that Satan exists in this world today? Not only that Satan is real, but also that he has the power to deceive people and veil their understanding. It's a really important question for each one of us. Because if we do believe what Paul does, then this this will motivate us to share in the gospel, whether that be inviting our friends and family to events like the carol service, discovery courses, where they can hear about this, or whether that be in practical ways of showing the love of Jesus for them, whether that be in teaching children or young people. There are many ways in which we can be engaged in this. But this can also be translated, can't it, into prayer points for us, both as individuals and as a corporate family of God's people here. Are we actively praying against Satan's work, praying that those invites that we delivered will lead to responses from the recipient people? That when the hope of Jesus and the gospel is preached and taught and shared, that their veils of their understanding will be lifted? Are we recognizing and praying that this is a spiritual matter, Are we praying and inviting the Holy Spirit to come and work in the hearts and minds of us and those that we seek to share with? Because this is a spiritual battle and there needs to be spiritual weapons used, prayer, the word of God and the Holy Spirit. So there are some challenges for us tonight from this passage. But there are also some encouragements as well. Look at chapter 3, verses 16 through to 18. As I said, this is a spiritual activity. When anyone turns to God, the veil is taken away. In other words, they can see and understand what's written about Jesus in both the Old and the New Testament. And this is enabled because of the work of the Spirit who brings freedom. So not only do we understand and believe, but there's also another product of this. Paul writes, we can reflect the glory of God, the Lord, made possible by the work of the Spirit within us when we invite Jesus into our lives. We see this in the verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. Paul writes, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, you will note here how Paul writes. You will note that this is a process, a discipline, 
a disciple-making process, making us more changed into his glorious image. It's an ongoing process. It won't happen instantly. So how then can we help with this process? Well, some general principles that can come from this chapter with reference to Moses and Paul. What do you notice about Moses and Paul? Well, notice that they were both obedient to the call of God. They both went where he called them to go. They both spent time with God by themselves. Moses spent 40 days and nights on that mountain top. Paul went into the desert in Arabia. We read of that in Galatians 1 before he started his ministry. They spent time alone with God. Spending time alone with God, listening to his words. We can do that through Bible study, through being open to hearing the Holy Spirit. So again, this gives us prayer pointers, doesn't it? To pray that we are hearing God, to pray that God's Spirit will indwell us so that we are being changed, that we are moving forward, becoming more like Christ. A theme for our church this year, discipleship. Something that we can submit to, to humble ourselves and become servants for Jesus. We can encourage each other in this, in pursuing spiritual disciplines. Richard asks us and, and suggests quite often that we read books that to help us in this. Well, we have also been reading a book recently. It's called The Discipline of Intimacy by a man called, a vicar called Charlie Cleverly. It's a fantastic book. It tells us how we can spend time with God's word and in prayer, leading to becoming closer to Jesus. Well, for Paul, what was the result of this process of being changed into the likeness of God? Well, look at chapter 4, verses 1. We recognize it's not by our actions, but by the mercies of God. This this message of grace, Paul writes about in several of his letters. He writes about it in Romans chapter chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. It's a bit uh, dated language there on the screen, but it does give you the idea. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, the sin of man. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to the eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's God's mercy and grace. There's no room here for pride or for our own efforts to enable this to happen. No, it's all of God and the Holy Spirit. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Well, what's the result for Paul? Well, we read, if you carry on in chapter 4 there, through those first verses, that Paul then never gives up. 
Despite the critics, the persecution, the dangers, he never gives up this ministry. He doesn't get defeated. In fact, he goes on to explain how he carries out his work. Look at verse 2. He doesn't use trickery. He doesn't distort the word of God. No, he tells the truth plainly so that all can understand. Well, isn't that a reminder to all of us? It's a challenge both to preachers but to all of us. How are we sharing the good news of the gospel? Are we speaking in ways that modern people can understand? Are we claiming more than the written word of God does? I think of some who claim that if you turn to Jesus, your life will be changed and that it will be better in all ways, in health, in wealth, and in relationship. Of course, we do trust that the work of the Holy Spirit will change us to become more like Christ, to humble us, to become servants of Jesus and each other, to turn us from self-centred beings to loving each other. But we think of the prosperity, the gospel that came out of America, which promises that God will bless us by making us wealthy and healthy rather than helping those who have so little. Equally, of course, we need to be sure that we include all aspects of the gospel, the need for recognising sin and judgment and repentance. Now, of course, judgment isn't a popular topic within many churches. We love to proclaim the loving God, the God who accepts all. But let's not forget Jesus calls us to repentance and to the fact of sin. Let's remember that Jesus calls us to respond to his claims to be the Son of God. But you'll see here also in these few verses that Paul doesn't make himself the centre of the preaching. He's not a celebrity. It's not all about him. There's a great danger, isn't there, in our celebrity culture in our society today, which can also be found in the Christian world as well as in the secular world. Listen to some preachers where the message contains more about themselves and their actions than about Jesus. Well, Paul, in contrast, preaches that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the centre and Paul is the servant. Verse 7. And then then Paul finishes this section by referring back to Genesis where we read that God made the light to shine in contrast to darkness. Here he promises that God has made his light shine within the hearts of his people. It's God's word completed by the work of the Holy Spirit to know and reflect the glory of Christ. So it's by God's power that we can show the glory of Christ within ourselves. It's God's action. It's a spiritual gift that comes from the work of the Spirit in our lives through the grace of God. So then, to remind you, go back to that first question I asked you. What are we hoping for this Advent season? What are we hoping for? Are we hoping to see the promise of the return of Jesus a second time? Are we living in the expectation that Jesus will come back to judge the living and the dead? 
And are we hoping to see the glory of God and to be filled with his Holy Spirit this time? Paul recognises, doesn't he, that Satan will blind some to Jesus and his gospel. But we can rejoice and we can pray for God's Holy Spirit to work through us and through this church this season. Amen.